be back with you all. Um, last time I was here, I opened the book of Ecclesiastes, and I'd mentioned that many of us who now teach throughout the church uh, began here in Bereans. Uh, we're thankful for that opportunity to teach. I was here some five years back when I started, uh, so I'm thankful for Jeff and the other leaders, Gary, um, for giving me the opportunity. Uh, I, if you don't know me, I serve as one of the associate pastors working primarily with single adults, so folks that are out of college and not yet 40. Um, I'm involved in the adult Sunday schools uh, from the staff side, um, involved with local outreach, and I also have the joy and the privilege of serving as one of the elders here, so, so thankful for that. So if you would go ahead and open your Bibles to First Peter, we, we will be there. We're going to start in First Peter. Last week when, when we all met, or when you all met, uh, you closed or ended the book of Mark. And so we are now finding ourselves in the second book that Peter influenced and primarily actually wrote, uh, the letter of First Peter. First Peter. In an uh, online article titled, Why We Need to Re-Emphasize America's Founding Principles in Civics Education uh, by Catherine Gorka, she writes that as a nation, we have a serious problem with civics education and history. She goes on to say, not only are there widespread efforts to undermine the country's founding principles, but the prevalence of civics and history as subjects in schools, she says, has declined. Multiple surveys show a negative trend in civic literacy. Uh, fewer Americans think that our nation is the best place of hope, opportunity, and community. She goes on to say that the loss of confidence threatens the sanctity of the American ideal and its validity and relevance to our self-governing republic. Uh, the article goes on to inform the readers that students uh, nowadays do not have a deep understanding of what is right and true and good and beautiful about America. A part of the challenge, she says, is that America's history is not all right and true and good and beautiful. Uh, slavery, racism, and racial segregation are major blemishes in our history, she writes, and are far from the only ones that are those blemishes. But, she says, the promises of liberty and equality are for all are at the heart of our nation. Uh, we have not always lived up to those promises. Uh, nonetheless, those promises found in the opening lines of the Declaration of Independence are what General Washington fought for and Americans have continued to fight for over decades and centuries. And so what is her solution uh, here? How do we restore knowledge and understanding of America's founding values and principles? And her answer is civics education. Uh, civics, she says, can equip young people, indeed all Americans, to say we share in those promises and we will not give up on them. But, she says, and I'm sorry to quote such a long article, but I think you will get why I'm doing this, but we need to go beyond that and teach the next generation and give them a deeper understanding of why our founders risked their lives for the right to govern themselves. As a nation, we must be more intentional about reaffirming illuminating, explaining, and disseminating the founding principles of freedom and individual liberty in compelling ways to prompt the next generation to safeguard our republic for generations to come." End of quote. Now what is true for our nation is also true for us as believers in a spiritual sense. Why? Because when difficult times come, when persecution comes, we are tempted to move away from our roots, away from our foundation. But it's precisely in those moments that we need to be more aware of our roots and more aware of our foundation. Uh, we can't let persecution and suffering uh, get the better of us. You know, when persecution and suffering comes, we can either have uh, one response or the other. We can either grow through it or we can grumble. We can grow or grumble. And that is why First Peter was written by Peter. Uh, this is the first lesson on First Peter, so we need to get some background, some context on this letter. So quickly, an overview of this particular letter that Peter wrote. First of all, the author himself 
It's the Apostle Peter, the Apostle of Jesus Christ. He says in that first verse itself, Peter, an Apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter doesn't add more to his identity like Paul does. He does not invoke the will of God or the call of God, and both of those are true for Peter. But he simply states his identity as an Apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, that is, he is a messenger of Jesus Christ. He speaks on behalf of Jesus Christ. He is appointed by Jesus Christ. Peter is one of 12 disciples. In fact, one of three, I would say, that were the closest uh, to him. And we would not be wrong in calling Peter as the leader of the pack. Uh, if there was something to be spoken, Peter opened his mouth and spoke it first. Uh, there was an old King James Version that said, having nothing to say, Peter said. <laughs> uh, that is Peter. That is Peter. On what basis can we then think of him? On what basis can we call him the leader of the pack? Uh, we studied Mark. In Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 1, it was Peter who uh, was mentioned along with others who went out for Jesus looking for him when he had gone to pray. In Luke chapter 5, we are told it was Peter whose boat Jesus used so frequently to teach. And on one such occasion, he told Peter to put out his net to bring in a massive catch of fish. In Matthew 10, Peter was a part of the group of disciples that went out on an outreach trip. In Matthew 14, Peter was the only disciple mentioned stepping out of the boat during a raging storm, and he walked on water. Only disciple to do that. John chapter 6 tells us that it was Peter who, speaking on behalf of the group, would say to the Lord, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. It was also Peter who denied our Lord, didn't he? It was Peter who was then convicted and he repented. It was Peter who was restored back to fellowship. It was Peter who ran away. And then was not mentioned as one of those being at the cross while these other disciples were. But again, he was also the one who ran to the tomb after being told that the tomb was empty. Uh, he received then, we are told, a personal visit from our Lord on the day that he resurrected. It was also Peter who was publicly restored and then charged to care for the flock in John 21. Peter was an important part of the group of disciples of the 12 apostles that were there. Peter then is the one who writes this letter. Secondly, the aim or the theme of this letter is standing firm through suffering. Standing firm through suffering. And that theme is woven through, uh, throughout the letter. Uh, we will get a preview of that in our text today. But it's most clearly stated in 1 Peter 5.12. It's almost at the end of the letter he spells out what the theme is. And what is the theme? He says, uh, through Sylvanus, pr probably an individual that he used in writing this letter. He says, through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Stand firm in it. Uh, this letter then is written with an intention to believers uh, who have or who uh, are or who will be facing persecution and suffering because of their Christian witness. Um, you know, the climate in our nation, uh, not referring to the climate crisis, uh, the increasing hostility that we are beginning to face to truth and gospel, it makes this letter very relevant and applicable to us. It's very relevant and applicable to us. Thirdly, uh, the audience. Who, who are the audience here? Well, in chapter 1, we are told to those who reside, at, verse 1, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontius, uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Uh, that is modern-day Turkey for us. Those are the regions to which he is writing. He says, um, chosen aliens or elect exiles. Now, for a long time, because of the word scattered that is used there, um, it was assumed that Peter was writing this letter to Jewish believers. Uh, scattered is the Greek word diaspora. Um, but in chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, 
if you want to turn there, it says, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. He's referring to many, many practices that were not a part of the Jewish people. And so we can say that he's writing to the Gentile believers. That's who he is writing to. Most of us probably fall in that category. Uh, he has been used by the Lord to share the gospel with the Gentiles in the past. If you remember Acts chapter 10 and 11, we are told how he shares the gospel with, uh, with the Roman uh, centurion, Cornelius. So the Lord has used him with the Gentiles. So it wouldn't be uh, out of the blue that he's also writing to believers, Gentile believers. Those chosen aliens, uh, as I mentioned, are scattered throughout modern-day Turkey. And then finally, the arrangement uh, the arrangement or the outline, if you will. How can we divide the book or how is the book divided? Well, here is one suggested outline. Uh, you don't have to have this outline, but it will be helpful for you as you read this book and this letter. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1 to 2, verse 12, he talks about the salvation of the believer. And then chapter 2, verse 13 to chapter 3, verse 12, he focuses on submission of the believer. And then finally, he comes to the suffering of the believer from verse 13 of chapter 3 to chapter 5, verse 14. Now, there's a logical progression here. If you observe, uh, Peter wants us to suffer well. Uh, Peter wants to prepare us to suffer well. He tells us how we can do that in the third section. But to suffer well the overall inclination of our hearts must be one of submission. Uh, it is submission by the citizens to the government, uh, servants to masters, wives to husbands, husbands to wives, and Christians to one another. And so we need to have a heart of submission before we are able to suffer well. But how can we have such an inclination of the heart? Well, it comes from the right a proper understanding of their salvation. And he tells us in this first section that we have been born again to a living hope, and because we have been born again to a living hope, we are to imitate the Holy One who has called us. And we will talk about that more as we get to the verses. Now that is the context and the background of this particular letter. Uh, with that, we are now ready to look at the text itself that we have for us. What are things that we need to remind ourselves of as we go through suffering or anticipate going through suffering? What are some of the things that we need to remind ourselves of? Just like the article that I mentioned earlier, we need to go back to our roots. Uh, we need to remind ourselves of the greatness and the grandness of our salvation. And so I've titled our lesson for today, So Great a Salvation. So Great a Salvation. Uh, why is our salvation so great? Well, I want to share with you four reasons for why it is great. And in sharing those, my hope is, along with Peter, that we are all well prepared to suffer the trials of this life. First of all, verse 1 and verse 2. Let's read that and then we'll talk about the first reason. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Uh, first of all, uh, we have a new identity that results in obedience to Christ. Uh, Peter begins with quite an elaborate opening statement, but in the greeting itself, he lays out his cards on the table. And there are at least four things he mentions about our identity in verse 1 and 2. Uh, first of all, he writes, we reside as aliens. Now, the NASB, like most of us probably have it, has aliens and chosen those two words separated from each other. Uh, but in the original language, they are together. Uh, the phrase is chosen aliens or elect exiles. Uh, this is a 
temporary resident in a foreign land. Our identity, he says, is not that we are citizens of this world. Uh, Paul tells us in his letter to the Philippians that our citizenship is in heaven, uh, Philippians 3.20. That is our true home, and because that is our true home, when we are here on earth, our identity is that we are aliens, resident aliens. Uh, We are pilgrims. Uh, We are sojourners. Uh, Remembering this identity will help us not to get too attached to what is here in this world. Everything related to this world is temporary and will one day be destroyed. Peter talks a lot about that in in his second letter. But everything related to this world is temporary. Not only are we chosen aliens, secondly, we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Now that is another side of our identity. It is that God chose us according to his foreknowledge. Now to have foreknowledge is not just to know or not just to have knowledge about someone. Uh, God's foreknowledge is actually an aspect of his omniscience. He knows all things. It reveals to us that this is a God who knows our past, present, and future on all, and all permutations and combinations that would have occurred, occurred. That is who this God is. Also, as we think of his foreknowledge, God's choosing us is not some random or uninformed uh, piece of decision. No, God chooses us. We are chosen. Uh, This is what the theologians call uh, the doctrine of election. Now, uh, for some of you probably, if this is the first time you're hearing, uh, hear me out, and then I would say, uh, happy to talk to you after, or happy to point to you some scriptures for your study. But what is election? Well, it's God's deliberate and sovereign choice of men and women for salvation to be adopted as his children, and it is not on the basis of any merit or obedience on their part. Let me repeat that. God's eternal, sovereign, and deliberate choice of men and women for salvation to be his adopted children, and it is not on the basis of any merit or obedience on their part. That is who we are. We are chosen exiles. And because it is God's choice, we do not need to fear that we will ever lose that status with God. That is your identity and mine if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Chosen exiles. And then secondly, that chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Uh, Thirdly, the means by which this election is actualized is the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, The Holy Spirit carries out the work of consecrating us and, and separating us, which is what sanctification means. Peter is reminding us that our choosing, our election is not just to impact where we would go, not just impacting our final destination, which is an eternity with God, it also has to do with how we live here on this earth. Election not only touches heaven in that sense, it also touches the earth. Uh, That work of sanctification, of separating, which is what sanctification means, is done by the Holy Spirit. Chosen aliens, according to the foreknowledge of God, by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, fourthly and finally, all of this is to result in obedience to Jesus Christ. That is a proof, that is the evidence of our salvation. Uh, This is a desire that God places in us to obey his living and written word. Uh, That's what to obey Jesus Christ is. Our identity is that we obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, That would have been sufficient And Peter could have very well stopped there, but he adds another sentence. He says, and be sprinkled with his blood. Now, why would Peter add that to this introduction? You know, Peter wants to actually begin with providing us a robust and a solid statement of what it means to be chosen. And so he lays it all out there. He says, we are aliens, we are sojourners, we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, but we won't obey Christ perfectly. And therefore he adds this phrase, sprinkled with his blood. 
Now, what happened when blood was sprinkled? Well, in the Old Testament, there were at least three occasions when blood was sprinkled. A few years back, we went through the book of Hebrews, and it was emphasized there. And those three occasions were, first, at the establishment of the covenant at Sinai, secondly, at the ordination of Aaron and, and uh, his sons as priests, and thirdly, at the purification ceremony of a cleansed leper. Uh, that is, blood was sprinkled at the time when a covenant was signed, when someone was set apart, or when someone was purified. as the duty of the priest to do that. So here's what Peter is saying when he adds this sentence. Just as sprinkling of the blood inaugurated the old covenant, the sprinkling of the blood inaugurates the new covenant. Just as it set apart the priest's for the duty of the priest, the blood of Christ sets us apart as royal priests. He mentions more about that in chapter 2, verse 9. And thirdly, just as blood was sprinkled when a leper was cleansed uh, from his leprosy or her leprosy, suggesting an ongoing cleansing and purification, the blood of Christ is sprinkled on us to purify and cleanse us while we are here on earth. We have been sprinkled by his blood. What a wonderful reality it is to think about these things, about what God has done for our salvation. We have the choosing by God, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and the ability given by God himself to obey Christ. That is our identity. And to individuals with such identity, Peter says, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. It's like saying greetings or hello. Uh, during that time, but with more depth and significance to it. Uh, here he's putting two different words as he ties this first section together. Uh, grace is obviously the uh, Greek word charis or charis, which means favor, and then peace, which is shalom. He's writing, remember, to Gentile believers. And so he puts there, he says, my prayer for you is that may the best that is available from God, both his grace and his peace be yours in full measure. What a profound opening statement this is. You know, from 2009 to 2019, uh, in this country, I was a permanent resident, a resident alien. Uh, that was my status. Uh, that is, I was a resident alien in this nation. In those 10 years, although I lived here, uh, my heart and my commitment and longing uh, was all to my country of birth, the country of my citizenship. And then in 2020, I became a citizen of this great nation. I received a new identity. Most of us may be citizens of this nation already, but at the end of the day, in God's eyes, and as his children, we are all elect exiles. We are all chosen aliens. We are all sojourners in this world. So when we suffer, we need to remember this new identity. We are chosen aliens. This is not our home. Secondly, we've been given a new beginning that gives us a living hope. A new beginning that gives us a living hope. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, as he gets ready to think and reflect more on salvation, he just bursts with praise and worship of this great God that we all have. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord. Now, the phrase is actually a reminder to Peter about the identity of Christ. Uh, in John chapter 5, we are told, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And Peter has heard that. Peter knows that. Uh, we not only have a new identity, we have a new beginning. And how did this new beginning begin here on earth? It was God's mercy that caused us to be born again. The cause was God's mercy. And what is mercy? Well, it's to withhold from us what we do deserve. 
And what do we deserve? We deserve God's wrath and his judgment. But what did, he, what did we get instead? Well, we received his mercy, and because of that mercy, we are born again. Uh, Spurgeon has this to say about what mercy is. He says, no other attribute could have helped us had mercy been refused. As we are by nature, he says, justice condemns us, holiness frowns upon us, power crushes us, truth confirms the threatening of the law, and wrath fulfills it. But it is from the mercy of our God that are all our hopes begin. God's mercy. Now he tells us in verse 23, which is not a part of our section today, how that process took place. He says we were born again, again the same word, through the living and enduring word of God, the scriptures. But within the word of God, he zones in on the gospel. This word, he says at the end of verse 20, 25, this, this is the word which was preached to you. That is the gospel. The cause was God's mercy. The means God used was the gospel. And the effect was that we were born again. Now, there is no different categories of Christians. You know, there is no, uh, this is the set of born-again Christians, and this is the set of the other kinds of Christians. No, there's only one kind of Christian, the one who is born again by the mercy of God. And if you haven't experienced what Peter is saying here, new birth, you haven't experienced what, experienced what it means to be a Christian. Now, what did all of this result in? It resulted in us receiving a living hope at the end of verse 3. Now that is, that is rich language. You see, when there is a new baby born, many of us have experienced that, there is a, there is a new life. There, there are a set of new hopes that come along with that. But with all things that are physical, there are limitations to those things. But that's not the case when God causes us to be born again. You see, when there is a new birth, there is a new life. And this hope that we have, Peter says it's a living hope, not a dead hope. Now, on what basis can he say that? Now, we find that at the end of verse 3, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He is one who has conquered death. That's why our hope is a living hope. You see, Peter had witnessed, he was the first-hand witness of the life, the sufferings, the murder, and resurrection of, of Jesus. On Friday, Jesus was dead and buried in a tomb. We looked at that in Mark's Gospel a couple of weeks back. But on Sunday, he was alive. And because that is true, the hope that we have in him, the trust that we have placed in him, is a living hope. And what is hope? It's a desire. It's a longing for something. Hope again in our English language is limited in its sense it's a wish but in scriptures it's as good as completed you know if you're in a family um, most cases now I'm not guaranteeing anything for you guys but mostly generally speaking you receive inheritance if you're a part of a physical family uh, you generally receive inheritance similarly being a part of the family of God also comes with an inheritance. Now, Peter does not mention what that inheritance here is, but as we look at that word inheritance, we see that it could refer to heaven or eternal life with God, or it could refer even to God himself. Isn't it David who writes in Psalm 16, he says, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance. And then in verse 5 here, uh, verse 4 rather, he says, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and reserved in heaven for you. He gives us four qualities of this inheritance that we will all receive. Notice, first of all, that it is imperishable. It's not subject to decay or, or corruption. It will never rot. Our earthly inheritance, whatever that is, house, money, is in the process of decaying, rusting, or falling apart. It's undefiled, he says. Our inheritance is undefiled. It's untainted, untouched, unblemished. That's what it is. Our earthly inheritance 
on the other hand, is imperfect, it's flawed, and it's defiled. Thirdly, he says it's unfading. Uh, what we have in our Lord Jesus Christ is an enduring possession. Uh, this is something that never depreciates in value. Uh, living on this earth, it's hard for us to imagine what unfading really is. Because everything fades. Hard for us to imagine what something that never depreciates. I remember when Esther and I were fairly new to this country about 18 years back, we were both working at that time. We used to have a 96 Toyota Camry, and we decided to give, give it to a relative, a poor re relative who needed that more than we did. And so we decided to buy a brand new Honda Pilot, 2007, uh, from the local Honda dealership. Now, not a plug for Honda, if you work there or don't work there. And then we, after we bought it, a week later, uh, as I was reading articles online about the car, I found out that my brand new black Honda Pilot was about $5,000 less in value than when I bought it. It depreciated. You know, that is true, and that will always be true of our inheritance on this earth. But our inheritance is not of this world, says Peter. Its glorious intensity, he says, will never diminish. The fourth quality he mentions at the end of verse 4, it's reserved in heaven for us. Our true inheritance is reserved for us in heaven. It's not earthly, it's not temporary. It cannot be stolen or taken away from us like our earthly inheritance it cannot be messed around with because it is not on earth. And in some measure, God actually gives us this inheritance to us even now, while we are still here on this earth. Not only that, we are possessors of this inheritance. We are kept by, he says, verse 5, protected by the power of God. You know, the promise of inheritance is, is certain because God himself preserves and protects it for us. It is ours through faith one day, and one day everything will be healed and will be made new. It will be whole. A living hope. You know, our new beginning operates primarily in the area of our hopes, our desires. When you become a believer, your hopes, your desires change. We are ultimately hope-based creatures in that sense. We operate based on our hopes. And it's vitally important that we understand what we hope for. The difference between earthly hope and living hope is this. Imagine an employer hires two workers, two laborers, promises them hourly wages. To one, he says, I'm going to give you $50 at the end of your day's work. To the other, he says, I'm going to give you $50,000 at the end of your day's work. Imagine with me, they're beginning to work. They begin to work in the morning. At noon, they both take a break. In the lunchroom, one says, oh, what a tiring and challenging work this is. So tedious and so not worth it. And the other says, what challenge? It's exciting and interesting to work because you see, both of their hopes are different. One is hoping to get $50 at the end of the day, the other $50,000. If that is true of earthly hope, can you imagine what it is like when it comes to living hope? No, we can't fully imagine. You know why? Because Peter uses four words here, and he's barely scratched the surface of helping us understand what living hope is. Understanding then this new identity, a new beginning then gives us the foundation, the basis to have a new attitude, a new attitude that highlights genuine faith. You see, because we are protected by the power of God, it gives us confidence, it gives us the basis to rejoice. What is this new attitude? It is joy in the midst of grief. Joy in the midst of Greek, grief. He says in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Did you see that? It's possible to rejoice and be distressed. It is possible to have joy and have grief at the same time. 
many of us who have lost dear ones, we experience that, don't we, if they are in Christ. Uh, we grieve, but we also rejoice in the fact that they are with the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice a few things about this trial. They are for now, verse 6. They are there while we are on this side of heaven. There are no trials on the other side of heaven. Uh, they are also fleeting. They are for a little while. They are quick. Uh, Paul in his letter to the Corinthians calls them momentary light afflictions. They are only if necessary. Uh, that is, they are not random acts or accidents. They are if necessary. And who decides whether they are necessary? Well, God decides if they are necessary. How do we know that? Well, if you turn a couple of pages, chapter 4, verse 19, notice what Peter writes there. He says, Therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God. God decides if something is necessary or not. But you might say, I, I get it. I understand what my attitude should be when I'm in trials. But must I really go through trials? Is there some other way for God to accomplish what he plans and purposes in accomplishing in my life? And the answer is no. And you, you might think, well, aren't we supposed to be people about the good news? Yes, we are. But that is not the complete reality while we are here on this earth. If we learn anything in our study of Mark, it is this, that the path to glory is through suffering. Isn't it our Lord who is the supreme example of that? He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. What, are the, what then are the reasons that Peter talks about here for suffering or trials? Why do we have trials? First of all, notice verse 7 at the beginning. Uh, trials reveal the enduring quality of our faith. Trials reveal the enduring quality of our faith. Here Peter gives us an example. And what a powerful example this is if you were to read in verse 7. It talks about gold. He compares the trials we face in our faith to the purifying process that gold is put through. You see, when gold is extracted, it, it contains all sorts of impurities. And so it is put through fire by the goldsmith. Uh, this process is called refining. The furnace is heated to such a degree that gold becomes a thick liquid. And then the goldsmith adds uh, generous amounts of soda ash and borax in a very, uh, in a very large quantity. And what that does, it, it separates gold from all the other impurities and other metal, metal, metals that are part of, of that extraction. You know, the refining process purifies the metal. When we are born again, our faith also has lots of impurities. Uh, suffering acts like a refining process in our life. It separates the impurities from the faith. It cleans it up. It purifies it. Also remember, in the process of purification of gold, the gold does not itself catch fire and burn. Peter tells us that our faith is more precious than gold because even gold will one day ultimately perish. But true faith will always, always endure. If it's important to put gold through the fire to purify it, how much more our faith? What trials do then is that they display the enduring quality of our faith. Secondly, trials result in rewards of blessing. You see, when Jesus comes, we're told that at the end of verse 7, when Jesus comes, when he is revealed, there's far more happening than just the end to our sufferings. When our faith is tested, when we suffer, when we endure through the suffering, when the authority of our authenticity of our faith is revealed, it, he says, results in praise and glory and honor. And who bestows this glory and honor and praise? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Verse 7 at the end. That you may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials result in rewards of blessings. Thirdly, trials reveal the reason why our attitude must be one of joy. Verse 8. 
And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly, again there's that word, rejoice. With joy inexpressible and full of glory. You know, our attitude during suffering must be one of joy because of the present fellowship that we enjoy with our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have not seen him, and we don't see him now. He's not physically here with us, but even though we have not seen him, we love him. And even though we do not see him now, we believe in him. And Peter has had the wonderful privilege of being on both sides of the, of the aisle there. On the one side, he has seen Jesus live and suffer, uh, die, and then be raised again, and then ascended. And now he's writing to believers, explaining to them uh, and rejoicing with them in their trials as he encourages them through this letter. Now, if that is our current situation now, imagine what it would be when we do see him one day. When he will one day be revealed, when he will one day come back to take his own. Trials then reveal the reason why our attitude must be one of joy. And fourthly, trials fill us with confidence of present deliverance. Trials fill us with confidence of present deliverance. Peter is looking at the here and now, obtaining is also here in verse 9, translated as presently receiving for ourselves. Obtaining presently the outcome of our faith, he says, the salvation of our souls. What does he mean by salvation of our souls? John MacArthur writes, salvation here refers to believers' constant, present deliverance from the penalty and power of sin. Uh, from its guilt, from condemnation, from wrath, from ignorance, from distress, confusion, hopelessness, and the dominion of sin. It's the present victories that we have. It's the confidence that we get that we can face it and come through okay. See, going through suffering then fills us with confidence that deliverance from the consequences of sin is available even in the present for us. A new identity that results in obedience to Christ, a new beginning that gives us hope, a living hope, a new attitude that highlights the genuineness of our faith, and fourthly and finally, a new disclosure that spotlights our salvation. When I say a new disclosure, I do not mean a new revelation. Uh, I mean progressive revelation of God's word. You see, not all the elements of our salvation uh, or not all the aspects of how we were saved or who the Messiah was or who the Savior was was highlighted in the Old Testament. After all, there's a difference between the real person and the shadow. And we are told that the Old Testament is one that points to the Messiah. But it's the New Testament that reveals who this Messiah is. But in, in bringing up something, he's making another point. Now read with me verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Now, Why is Peter highlighting what the prophets wrote? and what they prophesied about. You see, Peter is making a point here. He's writing that what he's writing about as regards to our salvation, it's not something that originated with him or the other apostles. No, there is an affirmation here that what he is writing about here is already testified by the prophets. He stands in the long line of faithful men who have prophesied on behalf of the Lord. It's in line with the long line of God's people who have come before him. And to that end, he highlights four groups of individuals for whom this topic, the topic of salvation, was of vital importance. What are we thinking about here? We're talking about our great salvation. And here, Peter highlights four groups of individuals for whom our salvation was of vital importance. Who are these individuals? Uh, first of all, notice 
that there are the prophets. The prophets. It was a focus of their study. The prophets that who came before us, they prophesied about the grace, about the salvation revealed to us. They wrote about it, told about it before, and that's what prophecy really is. It says they made careful searches and inquiries. They were curious, curious about what the plan of God was as regards to salvation and how he would accomplish it. Can you imagine um, before the, the last book of the Old Testament was written and the number of prophets that came before them, they were writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit but not understanding what it fully meant. And so they were curious. Uh, they were inquisitive of wanting to know more about what this is. Now they were aware of some things. They were aware of God's offer of salvation and that it extended beyond the Israelites. It extended to the Gentiles. Uh, they understood that God's plan of salvation involved an, uh, an anointed individual, a Messiah. Uh, they understood that that Messiah would suffer. If you were to read Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53, we would know that. So they understood these things. But they did not fully know the timing of his coming. They did not fully understand that there were going to be two comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there were certain things that were hidden from them. But our salvation, Peter says, was the focus of their study. Secondly, he mentions the apostles, not by name, but he says it was those who preached the gospel to you. For the apostles, it was the subject of their preaching. Peter, remember, was one of the first apostles to preach after the ascension at the Pentecost. Peter says this in chapter 2 of Acts, verse 38. Peter says to them, Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of Holy Spirit. Uh, this was the very subject of their preaching. How great is our salvation? Well, the prophets prophesied and were, were diligently searching for what salvation meant. Uh, the, the apostles made it the very subject of their preaching. But the Holy Spirit, it was the theme of his inspiration. See, the entire scriptures were written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Peter tells us in his second letter, verse, one, verse 21, verse one, chapter 1, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Moved by the Holy Spirit. Paul, in his letter to Timothy, he says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It tells us what it accomplishes, but why were they written? They were written to reveal to us God's plan of redemption. To that end, they were written to show us the sufferings and the glories of Christ. The Holy Spirit, it was the theme of his inspiration. And fourthly and finally, the angels, it was the object of their probing. Our salvation is so great that beings that were created by God look with intent interest, intense interest rather, and desire to know more about what this is. Uh, now they have a strong desire, uh, the, wor uh, the word there is an overpowering impulse to understand what God is accomplishing for his creatures who were created in his own image. Uh, angels long to look into what our salvation is all about. If you were to read the New Testament uh, and just remember Matthew and then Luke, you know, God used them to announce the birth of his son. Uh, God used to uh, them, the, these angels, to minister to Jesus when he was being tempted. Uh, God used the angels to inform his disciples when they came to the tomb. They were there, the angels were, when the Lord Jesus Christ ascended. And they have then a holy curiosity to know what our salvation entails. Uh, this is the kind of grace the angels will never experience. But as they understand more of what salvation is, they will be in a position to glorify God even more, which is also a reason for their existence. They are ministering spirits, aren't they? As you think about all of this, the grandeur and the magnanimity of our salvation is in front of us. If that is our foundation, according to Peter then, he writes this epistle... He's writing this epistle to help believers stand firm through suffering. 
And how does he accomplish that in these first 12 verses? How can the recipients of this letter, and even ourselves, stand firm through salvation? By reminding ourselves of so great a salvation that we have. You know, in these 12 verses, there is not a single command, not a single imperative, uh, not a single command to do something. And that comes in verse 13, whoever is teaching that next week. But in these first 12 verses, his goal is to remind us, brothers, sisters, what a great salvation we have that God has accomplished for us. These are then only reminders from him. Let me close our time with giving you some applications or lessons that we can learn from this. Uh, first of all, if you haven't done this lately, you want to take time to praise God for so great a salvation that he's accomplished in your life. Uh, perhaps bursts of praises and prayers to him throughout the week. Uh, perhaps a moment here and there that you get that you can say, God, I am so thankful for what you did for me in Christ Jesus. Secondly, if you haven't done this lately, uh, revisit your testimony. Uh, perhaps when you became members here, if you are, uh, you wrote down your testimony of how your life was before you came to know Christ, what were the circumstances in which you came to know Christ, and thirdly, what changes that that has brought about. It's a good time to revisit our testimony of seeing what God has done in our life. And thirdly and finally, Peter wants to encourage us to view our trials in light of what he has written here. A new identity, a new beginning, a new attitude, and a new disclosure. Let me close our time in a word of prayer. Father, we uh, come to you with just overwhelming sense of thankfulness and gratefulness in our own hearts. Uh, thank you for what you have done for us in Christ Jesus or in light of what we have learned, we give you praise and glory for your salvation. I thank you for the framework that we have of looking at trials in our own life. Lord, may you be honored through the times that we go through when they are difficult. Keep our minds and eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ, the very author and perfecter of our faith, in whose name we pray. Amen.